Oh yeah, that's good stuff right there. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of IP in times of TP. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I most certainly did. And yes, classic rock aficionados, we are opening the show with a little Scorpions action. Rock you like a hurricane. One of my favorite guitar players of all time, Matthias Jobs, not to be pronounced Matthias Jabs, right? That would be a newbie mistake. Why are we playing Scorpions in a medical device show? Well, easy. Spotify did an OR poll and found out what was the number one song played in surgery. And believe it or not, that was it. Digging up nuggets like this is just gold as a medical device rep. I strongly suggest you search stuff like this out because it's just a great conversation starter with the staff. I threw it out there to the people I worked with and said, hey, guess what the number one song played in the operating room is? According to Spotify, and I got all kinds of funny answers, and they got a kick out of just going through the whole exercise, but I got everything from cuts like a knife to the first cut is the deepest. Of course, anesthesia had to chime in with breathe, and two unfortunate ones, ones that I would not want to hear as a patient right before the dipper van kicks in, and that is knocking on heaven's door and stairway to heaven. No, not what I want to hear. Well, what you're going to want to hear today is our interview with patent attorney David Kalish. And you're thinking to yourself, why are we talking to patent attorneys on a medical device show? This is going to be boring, and you would be absolutely wrong. Allow me to illuminate your thinking. What is the true job description of a medical device rep? Are you a box opener? Are you a case cover person? Are you sales rep? Are you territory manager? What are you? What is your job title? Well, I would contend that the true job title that hovers over all of those is problem solver. And a patent or IP, intellectual property, is just one way to monetize that which you are already doing in this job. I have an amazing audience, and I know that Every person listening to this show today has at least one patent in them, if not more. I know this because this is what you do every day. You observe what's going on in the OR, what's going on outside the OR, and your job is to make it better. You are a problem solver. David Kalish today is going to give you the tools that you need to take it from a napkin. Why is it when you have your million-dollar idea, the only thing available to write on is a napkin? It makes no sense to me. Uh, To take it from a napkin to a U.S.-issued patent and onwards and upwards to a beach chair in Fiji. Let's step back for a minute and look at the word IP in the context of the Internet. It's called the internal protocol. When you hear of an IP address, it's the internal protocol. So if we're going to get to that beach chair, we've got to change our internal protocol, how we see things. So that involves looking at three things that involve an IP. See, we have a theme going on today. Intentionally positive, intentional problem solving, and intentionally peripheral. Intentionally positive. I know you're thinking to yourself, here he goes with it again. Will he just let it go about being positive all the time? I'm so sorry, but in this situation, it is absolutely an imperative to get to our other two steps. Negative people come to a stop. 
Just like a reamer that you're using in orthopedics has a built-in stop on it, a mindset of negativity sees a problem and comes to a full stop. A positive person doesn't even see that. They see an opportunity in the crisis. Negative people see the crisis and just completely shut down. So for us to get to the next step, intentional positivity, and I I say intentional because there's so many negative voices around us, whether it's the media, whether it's people, I could just go on and on. You're surrounded by it. You have to make an intentional effort to be positive in the midst of all this stuff. It takes focus and self-discipline. But again, without it, you won't see that things can even change. Negative people see things and go, well, that's just the way it is. And then they're negative about that. Positive people see that same set of circumstances, but see it completely different. Why? Because their internal protocol is different. Their way of processing information is different. So we have to focus on being intentionally positive so that we can get to the next two IPs, intentional problem solving. This almost takes a rewire of our thinking because we can easily see the problem, but we have to go to that next step and start actively thinking, well, how do we get around that problem rather than just say, well, there's a problem. Everybody can do that, right? But the people that listen to this show, I believe, will look at things and go, all right, how do we make that problem disappear? One thing I hate is the lights in hotel bathrooms, because I feel like there's only two settings on that switch, off and interrogate. And having to turn that thing on in the morning and just fry the rods and cones of my eyes at 545 in the morning, it just kills me. So rather than just look at that as a problem, I looked at it as how do we solve that, especially when it comes to dealing with the hair that came up on the face in the middle of the night. So began to work on developing a solution to a lighted disposable razor rather than having to turn the lights on in the room and was able to get a patent from that. Another situation, a doctor was mixing cement in a shoulder replacement, and we were mixing it in an open bowl, pouring it into the Tumi, and then injecting it into the drill holes of the glenoid. We both looked at each other and goes, you know, this is so archaic. This is a problem. Introducing air into the cement Uh, We can certainly do better than this. So what did we do? Immediately when the case was over, we found the first available napkin, and I'm not kidding, and sketched out our idea for a glenoid-centric cement delivery advice, and we're able to get a patent off of that. There's a PA over in Wilmington, North Carolina, who saw that wasted bone in these spine cases going into the, the hazardous waste, thought, how can we harvest that? and reuse it for these spine cases, and the Hensley bone press was born. It's just a matter of looking at the problem, but going that extra step. Lastly, intentionally peripheral. There are millions of distractions hovering around you every single day, millions of things vying for your attention, impending commission tweaks, territory realignment, the upcoming election, what your boss thinks of you. They're actually playing Barry Manilow on Spotify in this case right now, and that's really annoying. I could just go on and on and on, and it's easy to get so distracted that we miss all these opportunities that are around us every day for potential change. So we have to drown some of that stuff out and just focus Focus like a laser beam, step by step, what's going on, and have that peripheral vision to see the need for change. And we can't see that 
if our mind is completely cluttered up with this or that and, and things that invariably we have no control over. And I guess at the end of the day for me, that's it right there. If I can just get out of my mind all the things that distract me that I have no control over, which is a lot, right? I mean, think about it. It's a lot of things taking up valuable hard drive space that we have absolutely no control over. That alone, if I can just get that out of the way, that can help me focus and to be thinking about these other things. Those things that I just talked about, all these negative things that I have no control over, that is not going to get me to a beach chair in Fiji. If I can just get rid of that, that will at least give me eyes to see And I can be more intentionally peripheral throughout my day, looking for opportunities for change, looking for opportunities to be positive and to problem solve. So quick IP review in our quest to secure intellectual property. We are going to look at our internal protocol and work on being intentionally positive, intentional problem solvers, and intentionally peripheral. And hopefully, as a result of doing all that, we can secure the last IP, the International Playground. And I believe that Dave Kalish has the keys to your bungalow. So welcome to the show, David Kalish. Oh, thank you very much. I I appreciate having me on. Uh, David, you have made quite the contribution uh, in the patent law space, especially to me personally, and I look forward to asking you about copyrights, trademarks, design versus utility patents, uh, a number of other things. But first, I'd like to know what got you into this particular area of law? I have an engineering background. I went to NC State and uh, majored in engineering, and so I wanted to keep my hands in the engineering side of it but also wanted to get into the legal side. And so patent law has the ability to do that. And I actually do more engineering now as a patent attorney than I ever did as a as an engineer, basically because uh, part of patent law is I have to understand how an invention works, how it functions, and how it's different than something else. And so more than half of what I do is technically breaking something down figuring it out and then figuring out how it's different than maybe like a piece of prior art, another patent that's out there, or maybe where all the value is. And so getting into patent law kind of lets me do both sides of that. And so that's kind of what attracted me to the patent field and what has really kept me interested in here for over 20 years I've been practicing. So tell me about your practice there in Cary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I work for a firm, Coates & Bennett, and we are out of Cary, North Carolina which is just outside of Raleigh, and we are uh, exclusively intellectual property. And so that includes patents, trademarks, copyrights, and any litigation that we get involved with that. And we have, I think we have 13 attorneys here, and we all have a little bit of a different technical background, a little bit of uh, work experience. Um, A lot of us have worked in industry, and so we have that background going also, which, which helps when we look at a lot of these technical aspects. And so, um, yeah, depending on what an invention is, what a, a client has, um, really is going to, we, we usually have somebody here in our office who's going to have a background in that technical area and should be able to help. So let's work our way through uh, your practice, so to speak. Copyright, what is that and what does that cover? Sure. 
um, just kind of taking a step back is a lot of times what happens is I'll, I'll have somebody come in and say, Hey, I, I have this idea or I, I have, I've been, I've done something, I've invented something. How can I legally protect it? There, there's really three different ways that, that you can protect something legally. Copyright's one of them, trademarks, and then patents. For the most part, those are the three ways that you can do it. And so uh, a copyright is, uh, I mean, technically it is a, um, it's a work of art that's placed in a tangible medium. So it, it has some creativity to it. I mean, if you think historically about copyrights, you know, you're thinking about maybe paintings or music or, or, or something along those lines, movies. And so th- that's something that gets covered by a copyright as opposed to a, a, a trademark. Uh, a trademark is is something that identifies a good or service is coming from a particular source, and I mean people are you, you see trademarks every day, you know Apple computers, McDonald's, um, on and on and on. That that's more along the sides of marketing. It has nothing to do what your goods and services are. It really has to do with how are you, how are you marketing those goods and services. You know what's what's the name that you're using? What's what's the logo that you're using? And so that's the, the, the second way to do it. And then the, the third way to do it is patents. And, and patents, for the most part, cover the, the functional aspects of, of an invention. And, you know, what, what makes something work? Um, what's the methodology behind it? How is it made? How is it different than what something else has done? So, so patents are really looking at the technical aspect of it. Trademarks are looking at kind of the marketing aspect of it. And copyrights are looking kind of at the artistic or the creative aspects about it. So each one is really tailored to something a little bit different. And there's overlap between all three of those. So, for example, you can get a trademark and a copyright on something. You can get a patent and a copyright on something. Um, They're not mutually exclusive by any means. But it just depends on what do you have. And that oftentimes is going to dictate, well, here's the options of how we can protect it. And more times than not, one of those three features will be the main way to protect something. So if you're, for example, if you're an engineer and you've come up and, you're, and you work in your garage and you've, you've invented a new widget, that, for the most part, is going to be a patent. Um, what, what you've really invented is, is something new, the way it functions, the way it works, that nobody's ever done before. You know, it doesn't matter what you've called it. There's really not much creativity to it. That is pure you know, technical aspects. That's a patent, as opposed to maybe you come and say, "Hey, I've I've come up with a new app, and it does it, whatever." Um, there could be some technical features to the app yourself um, that could have some patent aspects to it, but a lot of times that's more marketing. What you have to do is you have to come up with a good name, a good logo that's going to attract people to your app. Well, that's looking more at the the trademark side of it. And, and that's really the, the, one of the big things that I do is, is just sit down and talk to clients and figure out what do you have? You know, where's the value in your idea? Because once you know that, that that's going to really drive which direction you're going to go. So back in the early 1960s, artist uh, Harvey Ball decided to boost morale at an insurance company. And he designed the very first smiley. I think he got $45 for it. Didn't copyright it, didn't didn't do anything. And I, as I look across the landscape, there's so many items, a, a computer mouse, for example, that are not patented or in any way protected. What's the argument for and against going into this whole process? 
I mean, the, the big one to protect it legally is to prevent someone else from seeing it and stealing it and, and taking it as their own. That, that's true with, with all of these aspects. And if you don't have some type of legal protection on it, then there really is nothing that's preventing someone else from seeing it and walking away with it and, and doing what they want. There, there's very little that you can do about it. There are some, there are some instances where you do have some what they call common law rights. For example, a trademark would have some common law rights. A copyright, you have some rights once you've created it, but but those are somewhat limited. And so that's probably the biggest thing as far as why you would want to go and try to legally protect it. Um, one of the downsides to it is it, it's expensive. Um, you know, patents are are expensive to get. Um, they take time. You know, an average patent is going to take you two to three years to get, and you really don't have a, much legal protection until your patent issues. While it's pending, you have some, but not a lot. Um, you know, so, same with trademarks and copyrights. Um, and so, so those are those are usually the the, the other side to it. And, and all of this this legal protection, it, it's a business tool, and there's no requirement that you get legal protection on your ideas. But the, the ultimate question is, is, is it, is it going to give you a business advantage that is going to be worth the, the time and expense that you're going to have to go through in order to get it? You know, that, that's ultimately what you're going to have to ask yourself. You know, do, do I want to go forward with this? Is getting a patent on this idea, is that going to bring value to, to, to my business? And, and, and once again, that, that comes down to, to a business decision. You know, there is no right or wrong answer to that, but, but you're going to have to answer that and figure it out. And in, in some of these, you have to answer right away. For example, a patent, I mean, you have a limited amount of time in which to file a patent application from, from when you publicly disclosed it or maybe before you've even publicly disclosed it. So you, you have to decide. If, if you don't decide, basically, the decision is being made for you. And so, you know, that's that that's kind of part of the calculus that you're going to have to go through to to figure out from a business standpoint, do I want to go through this or do I not? I, I've gotten two patents with you and we're working our way through the third, trying to get that across the finish line. And I remember when we started that whole process, the question of uh, design versus utility came up. Can you share with the audience what the difference is between those two types of patents? Yeah, these are both. On the patent side, so you know, we talked about the three different silos, if you will. Um, this is all patents. So a, a design patent covers the aesthetic appearance of an object. Um, the, the, the classic example that I've seen in my practice more than anything else is a uh, furniture, a couch, a chair, a desk, something like that. Um, you're, you're not the first person to come up with one of those items, but yours looks different than anybody else's. And it, it covers the aesthetics. So if the aesthetics is where the value is, that's why people are buying your product or your item, then a design patent may be the best way to protect that. Uh, a utility patent is the, the way an object functions. It's the way it works. It's the methodology behind it. Um, it it's more the technical aspect. I don't care what it looks like. How does the item function and work? And so that's on the, the utility patent standpoint. Um, design patents last 14 years from the day that they are um, issued. And a utility patent lasts 20 years from the day they're filed 
initially with the patent office. So design patents are generally less expensive. Um, basically, all you do is you submit drawings to the patent office saying, this is my invention, this is what it looks like, this is what I'm claiming is my invention. Utility patents, you have to have a pretty thorough, detailed technical description of, of what the invention is, basically everything about it. You have to have drawings to support it, um, claims. It, utility patents are a much bigger endeavor than a design patent. Usually, utility patents are going to give you a little bit extra uh, legal protection than a design patent will. I, I know a surgeon once who threw $200,000 at a lighted tongue blade patent he was working on, and he never even, he never ended up getting it. And I know that's an extreme. Normal run-of-the-mill patents, what kind of range, when people say, how much is this going to cost me? What's the usual range that a lot of these fall into uh, realistically? Uh, like I said, design patents, let's start with those. They, they're basically just drawings for the most part. Um, it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's not quite as involved. So for design patent, rough estimate, and, and these are really rough because there's so much variation to it. Sure, I get that. Um, say two to $4,000, something like that. Depends on really how detailed the drawings are and how much we have to do with the drawings. A lot of times if people are good on CAD and they've done their own drawings, we can just use those drawings. And that's a major cost of, of preparing a design patent. And so, rough estimate, put it within that ballpark. Um, a utility patent, you, you're, you're looking at, there's a wide range on those. I, I've, I've done utility patents for you know, $3,000. I've done them for $20,000. It, it really just okay. depends on the technology, how involved it is. Um, and, and, and a lot of times, maybe the prior art, how close is it? Um, so, so it, that, that can vary quite a bit as a general rule. There, there's, there's two parts to a, to a patent when you're looking at the costs. The, the, the first one is you've got to prepare and file the application. And then the second part is I got to deal with the patent office, get it allowed and then pay the issue fee that goes along with it. And so I always break it down into two parts. And so let's take a utility patent, for example, the, the, the initial cost is, you know, getting, understanding the invention, writing up the patent application, getting it so it's, it's got the drawings, getting it so it's perfect, and then going ahead and filing it. That's the first part of the, of the aspect. And, and as a rough estimate, that cost is, that, that's what ranges from $4,000 to $10,000, $15,000, something like that. The second part is arguing with the patent office to get the case allowed. And, and what happens is, the application, the utility application, we'll use that as an example, goes up to the patent office. It gets assigned to a patent examiner. They are going to read it, and then they're going to go out and do a search to see, hey, is this thing patentable or not? And there's really two things that they're looking for. One of them is novelty. Are you the first one to come up with that idea? And then the second one is obviousness. Is your design obvious over something else that's already in existence? That's when the patent examiner does his examination. For the most part, that's the two things that he's looking for. And in probably 95, 98% of the time, you're going to get rejected based on something. It's basically what the patent office does. Um, dealing with the patent office is where the second half of the costs come in. Usually there's one or two back and forth with the patent office to convince them that what you have is different. To, to get the wording of your patent such that it shows what those differences are. 
to show novelty and not obviousness. And so there's costs involved with that. And so usually that's the second half of the costs. So um, that that's something that's extra to it. So, so for example, I do a lot of medical devices. And for, for just a, a normal medical device that's somewhat mechanically related is a very rough estimate that the cost of putting together an application, let, let's say $6,000 to $8,000 to prepare and file it then dealing with the patent office and paying the issue fees is probably another six to $8,000. So it's a really, really rough estimate. By the time everything's said and done, you're somewhere in the ballpark of, let's say, ten dollars to $15,000 to get your patent. And, and, and that's rough, and there's obviously a lot of variation to it, but, but that's it. And it's broken out into those two parts. You have the initial preparing and filing it, and the other one dealing with the patent office. And that process usually takes about two or three years to do it. Um, what, what happens is we prepare the application and, and you can do those as fast as you want or sometimes they take a while. That's part of it. But when you file the application, it goes to the patent office. As of that date, it's patent pending. So you ever see patent pending on something? That's what it means. That a patent application has been filed with the patent office, but it hasn't issued yet or hasn't been determined that it's patentable. And depending on the technology of your invention, it will get assigned to an examiner who's a, a technical expert in that area. Some areas are backed up more than others. Software-related, electrical-related inventions, those have a tendency to have a longer queue. They sit there for a longer period of time than, let's say, more of a, more of a mechanical invention. On average, you're probably looking at that application from the day you file it to the day it gets picked up probably eight to 15 months before an examiner ever picks it up and does anything with it. So it's just sitting there. It's patent pending, but there's nothing you can do with it. And then it's probably another 12 to 18 months of back and forth with the patent office between rejections and responses. Hopefully you get the case allowed, you pay your issue fee and for the patent to issue. And so it, it's a, that's where the two or three year period comes into play. Design patents are usually much quicker to go through. Um, very seldom do you get a rejection on a design patent. You, you do get them, but that's, that's much much less frequent than you do for a utility patent. The, the majority of those go straight through without any kind of a rejection. And so as a result of that, you, you have the initial cost of preparing and filing the application, and then you don't nearly have as much on the examination standpoint. You have to pay the issue fee, but but normally those are considerably less expensive than a utility patent is concerned. So on one patent that you and I were working on, uh, we really hit a roadblock with the patent examiner. And we put together a conference call with the examiner, and that was the blow for freedom. Uh, what is the uh, role of that in in the context of, of this back and forth with the examiner? Is it something you wait till the last possible minute to play that card? Do you do it early? What's what's the strategy, so to speak? When you when you get your examination report back, and, and like I said, it's a at least a ninety five percent chance you're going to get a rejection. The examiner has to state why he's rejecting the case, and and more times than not, it's because he found some other prior art patent, and he basically has to explain how that prior art patent discloses all the elements of your invention, and he, and he puts it into writing, and you get it. Um, Sometimes based on what he says, 
it's easy just to put into writing and, and, and prepare a written response and send it to him to counter all of his arguments. Sometimes there may just be a difference of opinion on what a piece of prior art shows and maybe what our invention is. Sometimes the examiners, maybe they just don't have a total grasp on what our invention is, or maybe they're just missing something that we think is important and we don't think that they totally understand that. For, for a case like that, I think it's really advantageous to call up the examiner and, and have one of these interviews. Um, the interview is good because it's usually, it's, it's relatively informal and it, it's a lot easier sometimes to talk something out than to try to go back and forth in writing, especially if, if somebody's missing something, you know, it's like, we don't think the examiner's really understanding what we think our novelty is. He's just not quite seeing it. Or maybe it's, it's, I'm not understanding how his rejection is. He, he's showing me this piece of prior art, but I don't, I don't understand how he's rejecting it in view of what he's stating that prior art is. And so for something like that, when there just appears to be, you know, you're missing something that if you call the examiner up and, and just talk it out, a lot of times you can get through a, a lot of this stuff. And, and I've had a lot of cases and in your case is a good example of that, that when you read the examiner's rejection, you're like, oh man, there's, there's no way we're going to get this case allowed. He is really adamant. He has his art and it, it doesn't appear that he's going to budge. But then you call him up and you find out that, no, that's not really the issue, that, that he's not as set in his ways. And, and he would allow the case if we would do something to the claims or, or if we can explain something to him. And, and so a lot of times that, that's why you want to have the telephone interview. And it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily you have it right away or you have it late. Um, I've had cases that every time I, I get a rejection, I just call the examiner up. Um, sometimes it depends on the examiners, too you kind of have to just feel that one out and, and, and try to figure out what's going to be the best way to do that. But I think a lot of times being able to talk it out with the examiner is, is advantageous and allows the case to move forward and, and, and gain allowance a lot faster than, than just going back and forth in writing. Now, sometimes it's not. And so it, you really have to feel it out. I, on, on the other side, I, I've had cases where I've examined, I've, I've telephone interviewed them and, um, the examiner will tell me on the phone, yeah, that's patentable. Just go ahead and file a response. I'll file a response. And then two weeks later, I'll get a rejection from the guy. And he's like, what are you doing? That, that he's gone back on what he told me on the phone. He was going to, he was going to do otherwise. And so that, that happens too. And you just have to, you just have to feel it out. And it's, it's a case by case basis. Would you be kind enough to share uh, what a provisional patent is and offer your thoughts? Is that something that people should be thinking about every time or is it only uh, uh, applicable in certain, certain scenarios? Yeah. Um, uh, take, take one step back. The, um, the way the laws work is whoever files a patent application first is going to be considered to be the owner of that subject matter. So there is a lot of emphasis on filing an application early. And a provisional application is basically a placeholder. It holds your place in line as being first filed for a period of one year. After that one year, you then have to convert it into a non-provisional. And so the provisional just goes up there, holds its place in line. An examiner won't examine it. He won't look at it. He won't do anything with it. It just sits there. But it holds your place in line. And so I think provisionals have, have a lot of applicability in certain circumstances. Um, if, if you have to, you're trying to beat something, you, you want to get on file as fast as you can, a provisional is easy. There's no formatting requirements. 
I don't have to have formal drawings. I don't have to have a full set of claims that I would in a non-provisional application. I can put it together relatively quickly and I can get it on file. And so that's, that's an, a, a time when a provisional is a good thing to do. Um, I think a provisional is a good thing to do when you're still working on an invention. It's, it's still in the developmental stage. So, for example, I, I, I have a widget and I've come up with it. I file a provisional application on it today. I continue to work on it and I come up with a new improvement with it. Well, maybe I file a second provisional on that new improvement and then maybe a third provisional. I, I can file multiple provisionals during the course of a year. And then what happens is I take all those provisional applications and I bundle them all together into one non-provisional, and that's what gets filed a year from the date of my original one. So I think that's another case where there's, there's a good opportunity for provisional. Um, provisionals, like I said, are generally less expensive. And so I, I've had other people that say, hey, I have this idea. I think it's a good idea. I just don't know if it's going to be successful or not, but I'd like to get a patent on it. And so what we do sometimes in those cases is let's file a provisional. It, it's going to be less expensive. Let's get it on file. Gives you a year to go out and, and go out and, you know, maybe show this thing around a little bit, see if there's some value to it. If there is before that year expires and we'll come back and convert that provisional to a non-provisional and we'll go forward with the full examination. So, so that's another time when I think a provisional is, is a good thing to do. Um, there, there's times when I think a provisional is not a good idea though, too. I think if you've, if you've completely developed the invention, you know what you're going to do with it. It seems like there's a lot of interest in it. Then, then there isn't a lot of advantage. I don't think to filing it as a provisional, just go ahead and file it as a non-provisional. Ultimately it will be less expensive. Um, it will get examined faster and it should, it should ultimately result in an issue patent faster than, than what the non-provisional is for, for the pure reason that that non-provisional is going to sit there, or excuse me, the provisional is going to sit there, for up to a year, it, it's nothing's going to happen to it. The, the, the non-provisional when you file, it goes into the examiner's queue. Eventually, he's going to pick it up and examine it. And so if you want to get, you know you have this idea and it's, it's got value to it. You want to get this thing on the market. You want to get it patented as fast as you can. Then you want to file it as a non-provisional. You do not want to file it as a provisional. Because remember, one of the things I said very early on is you really don't have any rights in your patents until your patent issues. So your provisionals up there, your non-provisionals up there, they're patent pending. You can put patent pending on it. You can write scary letters to people, but you really have no teeth in that. You don't have any power really to stop anybody until your patent issues. And so that may be a case where you don't want to file a provisional. You want to go with a non-provisional. So, so I think with a lot of these things, I, I think there's absolute times when a provisional is, is ideal and there's a, there's there's a lot of value to doing that. And then you know, conversely, there's there's times when a provisional probably isn't the way to go, and and you don't want to do you don't want to go with it. And then that's something you want to talk about early on. And 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 then once again, it's a business decision, and there's strategy involved with it. And there's there's not necessarily a right or a wrong answer to it, but you, you just need to know what your options are, what the pros are, what the cons are, and then you can then make a decision and say, yeah, this is, this is how I'm going to go. This is why I'm doing it. And, you know, let's move forward. From my personal experience with you, I know that one of the first steps when you have your million dollar idea is to do a patent search. Now that can be done to some degree on Google patents, but is it a case of the old Italian proverb? Uh, the man who is his own lawyer has a fool for a client. I am a proponent of doing patent searches. 
So have, have somebody do a patent search. And the reason being is I want to know what the closest prior art is at the time that I am preparing my patent application for a bunch of different reasons. One of them is if I find another patent out there or another disclosure that's it's the same thing, then I don't need to go forward with the patent application. It's not patentable. Either it's not going to be it's it's not novel or it's obvious. So so that's one of the main reasons why you want to do a patent search. Um, the other one is I want to know where my invention is relative to everybody else's. So I want to know the features of my invention that really differentiate it from the prior art. So for example, I have an invention that has elements A, B, and C, and I go out and do a patent search and I find stuff that has A and B, but I don't find anything with C. I know when I write my patent application, I really want to focus on C. I, I really want to say everything I possible can about C because I know that's, that's, what's going to distinguish me from everybody else. That's the reason I'm going to get my patent. And so I may not know that if I hadn't done a patent search. So, so that's why I generally am a proponent of, of doing patent searches. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. Like you said, you, someone can just go on Google patent and do it. The, the United States patent and trademark office has a pretty good search tool that you can go on. That's free that you can do patent searches on. Um, we, we do a lot of patent searching. We have some paid databases that we use um, that we have pretty good luck with. Um, we have outside search firms that do a lot of searching for us that will basically explain to them what the invention is, and they'll go out, and that's all these people do is, is patent searches, so they're experts at it. So, so they'll go out and, and find um, what is you know the closest prior art to what our idea is so we can take a look at it. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do it depending on, you know, what your invention is and, and, and how much time and how much money you want to spend on the patent search. There, there's no requirement that you do a patent search, but there's definite advantages to it. The only requirement that you really have is once you file, say you move forward and you file your patent application, you have a duty to disclose to the patent office anything that could affect the patentability. So any patents that you find in a patent search, any any other items out there that are similar to yours, you have to disclose those to the patent office during your pendency of your patent. You can't hide stuff. They don't let you do that. And so if you do go out and do a search, just make certain that you keep notes of, of what you found, because then you just take those notes and that's what you file. You know, you can you get your patent numbers and you can, it's easy to file those. It's, it's, it's very difficult or impossible to try to recreate that search if you didn't keep notes while you were doing it, you know, three months later, I'm going to send you a letter and say, Hey, we filed a patent. Are you aware of anything we need to disclose to the patent office? And you're going to say, Oh, I did that search, but I can't remember what I found. You got to try to recreate it. And it, it, it creates potentially some issues that, that, you know, if you would have kept good notes, you went to run into. So you get the letter from the patent office saying, congratulations, you got it. It doesn't say congratulations, but uh, so it's issued. And then you have to answer the question, do I apply for international protection? Right. What are your thoughts on that? Is it worth uh, paying the extra money for that? Or is the patent law so lax in some of these other countries that it really doesn't do much for you? Yeah, I'll give you a good lawyer answer. and It, it depends. Um <laughs> Yeah, you don't. You, first of all, you have to file. Take take a step back. Um, you have an invention in the United States. You have one year from when you first publicly disclose or offer it for sale to file for your patent. So I have a widget. I don't know if it has any value to it. I'm going to go out and start seeing if I can sell it. I spend up to a year doing that. 
looks like I want to go forward with the patent. I prepare a patent and file it. As long as I do it within 12 months, I'm fine. Most foreign jurisdictions require that you file a patent application on your idea before it's publicly disclosed anywhere. So using that example that I just gave you in the United States, that's great in the United States, but you've just wiped out your ability to get a patent about 95% of the world. And so when you think about, do I want to get foreign patent protection or not, you really have to think about it right away. And because if you do, then you want to go and file that patent application early. And, and what happens is the United States is in various trees with most other patent offices around the world. And you can, what they do is called claiming priority to your application. So, so what normally happens is you file a patent application here in the United States before you publicly disclose it. And then within 12 months of filing that in the U.S., you then take that basically that same patent application and you file it in all, whatever other country where you want to obtain patent protection. And as long as you do it within 12 months, it's as if you filed that patent in those foreign countries on the same day you filed it in the U.S., which is before your disclosure date. And so you got you to gotta think about that early on. Once again, there's no right or wrong answer to it, but it's a business decision and you got to figure out what's best for you. Um, foreign patents are expensive. There's a lot of fees involved with it. Um, we have to use attorneys in all these individual countries. I'm only licensed in the United States. I can't file a patent anywhere else. So you tell me, hey, I want to get a patent in Germany. I call up an associate in Germany that I use, and he's the one who actually files it, or she's the one who actually files it for me. I, I can't. Um, so it's expensive to do that. Um, I, I think the question you have to say is, is what am I trying to get out of this, out of this foreign patent? Um, you know, if, if, if you're a big company and, and you have, you know, Salesforce, you have, you have people working in all these countries, and yeah, then that's a much easier question. Um, if you're relatively small, is there value in, in getting a patent in these areas? And, and, and I think there's two ways to look at that. One of them is, okay, this becomes a business. I want to have that patent. Is there going to be value to it for, for helping me grow my business in that area? I think the other way to look at it is, hey, I want to I, I want to sell this idea, or I want to attract investors who are interested in investing in this idea. If I get these foreign patents, is it going to have more value than it would otherwise? For example, take a medical device example, and um, I, I have the ability to get a patent in Europe. Well, maybe you get one of these big, you know, medical device companies who, you know, half their business is overseas. It's, it's in Europe the value of, of that patent to them, the fact that you have it available to get a patent in Europe is going to be greatly increased. And if you said, no, I, I can't get it in Europe, I've, I've disclosed it, I can only get it here in the United States. So I think you have to look at it from, from a couple of different standpoints to figure out, should I file in foreign countries or shouldn't I file? Um, and, and once again, there's no right or wrong answers, but there's, some, there's definitely ramifications as far as what you're going to do. When what you're patenting is a medical device, does that add degrees of difficulty getting it over the finish line? I don't think so. I, I think a, a medical device is, is basically treated with the patent office as if it's it's any other type, let's say mechanical device or electrical device or you know, most a lot of medical devices now have software with them. Um, I, I don't think that creates any additional difficulty with it. Um, every once in a while, we run into one that's um, it. it gets a little difficult with the technology 
um, that your your the software side of it sometimes gets difficult, or um, if if the invention itself is the method of of doing the procedure, sometimes that's more difficult than if the, the invention is the device. Um, you know, say for example, it's a it's a method of you know doing something to um, you know the the spine. And you're not necessarily inserting a device or anything. So the novelty is not in the device. The novelty is in the method itself. Sometimes you run into issues with that. Um, the, the real big issue that you run into is you, you can't claim a, a person as the, as the, as the, the invention. So, so you have to, you basically write it from the standpoint of the doctor who would be performing the procedure. And, and sometimes there are some issues with that, but you just have to look at that issue as you're analyzing how you're going to move forward with the patent and and that becomes part of the the analysis and, and part of the the determination a factor in determining whether you want to you know file for a patent and, and what the value of that patent may be any advice to the surgeons and device professionals that listen regarding taking their idea from a napkin to a u.s issued patent one of the the first things that i always ask people is where do you work? Did you, would you own this invention or are you working somewhere, maybe a hospital or maybe a practice that even though you invented it, you, you don't have the rights to it. You've signed some kind of, of assignment or some kind of statement that says you agree to assign all your rights and anything you've invented to your employer. And so that's a really, really, that, that's one of the very first questions you have to ask. In before you go any further, because what you don't want to do is go through this whole process, get an issued patent, and find out that hey, it's not even mine. I got to go give it to my employer. So, so that's that's just a very fundamental and and basically the first question that you ask is 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 there anything that's going to potentially cause an issue with ownership in this patent? And and a lot of times people are surprised what they've signed. And, and a lot of times they don't even know they've signed anything. And it's like, go to your HR person or go to whoever. Let's look at what you've signed when you started working there. And let's see if there's anything in there that, that could potentially be an issue. So, so that's something I see that's tripped up people often for, for something like that. Um, the other big one is, remember, the United States, you got one year from when you publicly disclose or offer for sale to file for a patent. Once that year is gone, you're done. You're not going to get a patent. And then if you're interested in foreign patent protection, you've got to file before you publicly disclose or offer, offer it for sale. If not, you're, you're probably going to be done. So, so just be aware of those requirements because at least the public disclosure one that, you know, once it's, you know, the cat's out of the bag, cat's out of the bag, can't put it back. And that's another one that I've seen over, over the years that have really cost people a lot. You know, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had. Someone calls me and says, hey, I've had this great idea. It's awesome. Everybody loves it. You know, how long have you had it? I've had it three years, and I've used it, and it's great. And it's like, okay, that's you know, pretty much the end of the conversation right there. Um, we don't have to go any further. And a lot of times people just don't even know that. They're not even aware of it. But that that's an ender right there. I mean, it's, you know, game's over. So I, I think those are just a couple of things that you that you really they're, – they're, they're just fundamental. They're either yes or no. And you can't go any further if, if the answer to those is no. And so just, just keep that in mind. That, that's, that's probably the thing that's, at least at a very fundamental level, that's, that's really, really important. Well, having you on the show was obvious to me. I'm so thankful for, for you and, and the great work that you do there. And I encourage all of my listeners to, 
to reach out to you online if they have their million dollar idea. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the show to to give some sage words of advice to our our fledgling entrepreneurs out there. No, absolutely. So yeah, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking. Now listen to me. I have a father-in-law that says that before everything. It's hilarious. But in this scenario, I mean it. Listen to me. You have a very unique vantage point as a device rep to observe processes that can produce patents. I know we're drowning in P words today, but hang with me here. Your job allows you to see things that a lot of people do not get to see. And you will get presented with problems that, you know, they may just demand a solution in the here and now, but many of these problems produce potential patentable solutions. So I hope this conversation has been helpful to you next week when you're in the OR lounge scrambling for a napkin to write down your million-dollar idea. You're going to know exactly what to do as a result of our conversation today. If it's a provisional or design, utility patent, all those things that you need to do, uh, you're going to have a good foundation to build on. Very thankful for David coming on the show and taking time out of his life. Uh, just really valuable information that was uh, shared with us today. Be sure to check out the show notes. I put Dave Kalish's contact information in there, phone number, email, and his website address. I'm sure he would love to hear from you if you have any questions concerning all things IP. I hope you all have an awesome week. Again, I always am thankful to have you there. And let's remember as we go into this week to be positive. Device nation. Intentionally so. Intentionally problem solving. Intentionally peripheral. And most importantly, let's all be safe.